Well, good morning again. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at just one verse this morning. If you're using those blue Bibles, that's page 944. 944, bring you to Romans chapter 8. We'll be focusing on one verse, but we'll be looking at some other verses as well. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard the phrase, not that, excuse me. Have you ever heard the phrase that everything happens for a reason? Everything happens for a reason? Okay, so I was trying to think that through, and I was asking myself, what does that mean? What exactly, what does it mean? And sometimes we say things or we repeat things, but we don't really maybe have thought through all the implications. So I googled, which is always dangerous, but I googled the, the answers, possible answers to that question. So one response went like this. In other words, you know, why, what does it mean that everything happens for a reason? One answer went like this. Everything happens for a reason, but sometimes the reason is that you're stupid and you made bad decisions. Huh? Okay, is that what you mean? You know, I mean, it could be that. That's kind of a rationalist kind of a response, approach. Uh, here's another one. Simply explained, everything happens for a reason because of vibration. Yeah, you remember, I Googled this, okay? But actually, this is not, I'm going to read it, and this is not a rare response. The thoughts we think create feelings, emotions. This sends out a vibration to the universe. Uh, In parentheses, law of attraction. I'll explain that in a second. If you spend the majority of your time in a low vibration, thinking bad thoughts that make you feel emotionally awful, depressed, etc., you will draw more of that feeling to you. If you spend most of your time in a high vibration thinking wonderful, positive thoughts, you will create an atmosphere which is beautiful, and great, wonderful opportunities will open up for you. Now, some of you are laughing, but there's a book called The Secret that came out several years ago, made very popular by Oprah Winfrey, who subscribes to the teaching of that book, specifically a specific teaching called The Law of Attraction, that you basically control your destiny by what you think. So if you think positive things, if you think about something, if you believe it, you can achieve it, and it, you basically can control the universe, and the universe will respond to you and your positive thoughts, and then positive things will come into your life. So when they think about, you know, everything happens for a reason, yeah, it's, it's happening because of the way you're thinking. Bad thinking leads to bad circumstances, good thinking leads to good circumstances, so I guess for all of us who are out here having bad circumstances, I guess we just got to change our thinking. We need to have more positive thoughts, and then the world will open up to us because the universe will cooperate with our little stinking minds. And, and, and it's just amazing to me, beloved. That book is still, that, those concepts are still prolific in our society. Uh, you talk to people who have gone to you know, philosophy classes, and you mention the idea of law of attraction. It's unbiblical, completely unbiblical, but they have bought into this nonsense. Uh, You don't control your destiny, by the way. God does, just so you know. All right, another person said, and this is probably closer to what a lot of people would say. They said this, it means that there is a greater purpose to the things that happen to you, okay? A purpose, and they try to explain it, a purpose that will somehow, somewhere, make something or someone better. Uh, okay, I guess you covered all your bases. A purpose that you cannot understand. For example, if you lost a loved one, you hold on to the thought that everything happens for a reason and it gives you some sort of comfort. 
I read that, and the question I'm asking is, but how? How, exact, how exactly does that give me comfort? I lose a loved one, and then someone comes up to me and says, you know, everything happens for a reason. Okay. But I'm still dying. I'm dying inside. And I don't even know what the reason is. So the person goes on. I am not so naive, they say, that I don't understand how ridiculous this probably sounds, but maybe I just find some comfort in the thought that my suffering is for a reason. Well, I get that. I get wanting to find comfort in suffering. I get that. You want to be comforted in your suffering, right? And so people will try to deal with that. But again, for what reason or purpose? If, if you believe that there is a reason for your suffering, what is the reason or purpose? Is it one I can't really understand? Is it that somehow or some way this will make something or someone better? And really, let me ask you this. If that's your approach, how can you know that for sure? I mean, to me, that really just sounds like blatant optimism to the extreme. Just, I'm going to be optimistic. I mean, what if the reason, let me ask you this. What if the reason things happen is... So that somehow or some way, what has happened will make something or someone worse. Is that not a possibility? I mean, if we're just going to throw out possibilities, is that not also a possibility? Well, you need to be more optimistic, Jeremy. Why? Tell me why. So in my estimation, the phrase, everything happens for a reason, isn't really able to provide true comfort in the midst of suffering. I don't think it is. I don't think if you really press it or really think about it, I don't think it can in and of itself. But beloved, guess what? There is a biblical promise in the passage that we are going to look at today that when rightly understood, can, can bring a Christian a great deal of comfort and peace in the midst of difficult in painful circumstances. Hey, my friends, you ever faced some painful and difficult circumstances in your life? Do you anticipate you might also in the future face painful and difficult circumstances in your life? Huh? Yeah. And so this verse is very applicable to all of us. We need to understand it. We need to know it. We need to apply it to our lives. All right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start, the verse is actually verse 28, but context is everything here. We'll talk more about that in a second. So I'm going to pick up in verse 15 of chapter 8. So would you let your eyes roll back there? And we're going to read all the way down to verse 30 for context. All right, beginning in verse 15, the Apostle Paul writes this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, speaking to Christians, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Verse 18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This morning, we're going to simply ask, well, we're going to start. We're going to start because it's a two-part sermon. We're going to ask and answer two questions concerning the amazing promise, and it is amazing, found in Romans 8.28, so that as Christians, we might have true confidence and hope in our suffering. It's that simple. That's what we're going to do this morning and next. So the two questions are, who is the promise for? Hey, beloved, not every promise in the Bible is for you. I just want to throw that out there. There are many promises that have been made to the nation of Israel or promises made to specific people with specific circumstances. You cannot find every promise in the Bible and say, it's for me. Some people say that, but it's just simply not true. So we need to ask always, when you see a promise in the scriptures, you need to figure out, who is that for? Is that for me? Is that for me as a Christian, or is that for someone else? So we're going to look at that. Who is the promise for? Second, what does the promise mean? What does it mean? And we're going to break that down. Now, before we start to look at the first point, what I want to do is some review. Are you guys okay with some review? Yeah, it's always good to be reminded of things that we've already heard, or maybe you missed something, you missed one of the sermons as we move through verses 15 through, through 27 there. And so this might be new to you, but we're going we're gonna to do some review, and we're going to talk about the context that we find verse 28 in. Now, this has been said before, and it'll be said many times going forward, but when you're looking at any biblical text, any of them, one of the most important things you can do is look at the context, the context, that's the verses that surround that verse, the book it's in, and even the entire Word of God itself. That's the largest context you could consider. Because, why is that important? Because if you pull a verse from its context and try to understand it or make sense of it, you might think it means something that it really doesn't. Is that good? That is not good. That is bad. You want to know what it really means. And it's not what it means to you or what you want it to mean or what anybody else wants it to mean. 
It's what the author intended when they put it there. That's what's important. So what we're always trying to do is find out what did the author intend? What did God intend by inspiring this writing? Not what I want it to mean. And so in order to do that, I have to look at the context. So again, you'll hear that over and over again because I just find in so many places and with so many people, even the people of God, they rip verses out of their context and begin to say things about them that they do not mean. And they can make them say what they want them to say because they have pulled them out of their context. You okay? You good? Very important. All right, so here's some review. Beginning in verse 15, we're just going to kind of move through it, and you'll see why I'm doing this as we get to the end, hopefully. Uh, that, that first part of verse 15 is a little uh, hard to understand. I think the NIV words a little bit better. So the NIV words, verse 15, the beginning of it, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. And when I went through that part, I explained that I, that's a, to me it's a more understandable translation at least. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. He's speaking to Christians. In other words, the spirit that believers have received. What spirit have we received? The Holy Spirit. Every single one of us. It's not for a privileged few. It's for every child of God. They, re, they are born again. They receive the spirit of God. So the spirit that you have received as a Christian, that assumes you are, does not bring about anxiety and fear of God's judgment, that anxiety that previously held them in bondage before they came to Christ. It does not that, do that. But instead, in great contrast to that, I think that's what Paul's doing, he's contrasting the reality of the spirit they have now, the Holy Spirit that you have received, the spirit of adoption as sons, and we spent some time going through that term, that phrasing, it produces within the heart of the believer a sense of peace and security. In contrast with anxiety and fear, the spirit you have received produces peace and security before God as his beloved child. And by the enabling of the Holy Spirit that indwells every Christian, you now cry out, that Christian cries out, Abba, Father, Daddy. There is an intimate relationship with the God of the universe now through Christ. Then in verse 17, the Apostle Paul draws our attention to the fact that it is adopted as adopted sons of God, as children of God, Christians then are, guess what? Heirs of God. Heirs. And fellow heirs with Christ. Now, I just have to pause again for a moment just to kind of... I, just, I, I don't want to just step away from this. The content, the truth found in the book of Romans, beloved, is absolutely amazing. All right? It's amazing. Every one of us, every sinner, right? Is there anyone in here that is not a sinner? No, there is not. Not according to the word of God, not by your own conscience. You'd have to lie to yourself to say you weren't a wretch, wretched sinner, messed up sinner, all right? You're a messed up sinner, all right? So listen, every sinner has rightfully earned and deserves nothing more and nothing less than God's wrath and judgment. I don't understand what's hard with that. People don't want to talk about that anymore. They don't want to say that. That's what the Bible says. That's the, listen, that's what makes the gospel so amazing. When we understand what it is we really deserve. We don't deserve heaven. 
streets of gold and all the wonders of that. We don't deserve everlasting life. We don't. We don't. We deserve the opposite. But according, listen, but according to the book of Romans, we are not only, we are not only entirely forgiven of all of our guilts and sin through faith in Christ's saving work on our behalf. Not only that, but through the Holy Spirit who is given to us and indwells every true follower of Christ, we as born-again believers, as saved and justified sinners, we're not just sinners anymore, my friends, we are in Christ justified sinners, saved sinners, We are, through that spirit, permanently placed into God's family and brought into his blessed fellowship. No. Amen. Where? Here is it. Come on now. Amen. All right. In our salvation, in Christ, we are not only saved from God's wrath. I mean, that alone is amazing. Huh? But we become... God's beloved and privileged children forever, forever. And for his children, or as his children, we have been made rightful heirs of our heavenly Father's estate. Hello. Hey, God owns it all, and he's given it to his son. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That's it. Listen, that's awesome. That's unbelievable. This is what makes the gospel so good. It is the best news anyone could hear. It is the best news you could spend time hearing, repeating, speaking to yourself. It is this news right here, man. Ah, So, but listen, watch. After Paul makes all these incredible statements, and they are, wow. I mean, they're really wow statements, that we are heirs of God, especially that one, that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, not only justified, but the promise of glory and all the riches of Christ. Oh, my, Paul then says the following, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, that seems a little anticlimactic, don't you think? It's like... uh, it's kind of anticlimactic. It's kind of a disappointing end after an exciting buildup. You're like, yeah, Paul, yeah, Paul, suffering, whoa. What's that? Why you pull out the suffering card in the midst of all the glory? It's like someone saying to a homeless person, listen, you just won the lotto, baby, $300 million. You were poor, but now you are rich. But before you collect your prize, you're going to have to do five years in the penitentiary. You see what I'm saying? That's anticlimactic. That's an example. Like, oh, oh, okay. So that's kind of, yeah, say what, Paul, what? But now, I, and I told you, I explained this to you already. I believe Paul raised the issue of suffering at this point because he wanted to make sure that his Christian readers, by the way, us, if we're Christians, also reading this now, many years later, make sure that we understood that, or understand that even though they had been made or have become God's beloved children as a result of their saving faith in Jesus Christ, that even though that was absolutely true, 
That remarkable spiritual reality didn't somehow exclude them from the sufferings of this present time. Huh? You hear me? Rather, to one degree or another, like the Son of God, like our Lord Jesus Christ, in this present age, in this life, we too will suffer on the road to glory. We will. We will. And beloved, as followers of Christ, that is a message we need to understand and come to terms with. We need to come to terms with that. While our status as children of God is absolutely the greatest status anyone on earth could have, right? It is the greatest. There is no greater status than being a child of God. It is certainly not, while it's the greatest, it is certainly not a status that exempts us from suffering. At least not in this life. Not in this life, my friends. If anything, if anything, we will certainly face a greater degree of suffering. Huh? Right? That's what the scriptures say. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, you know what the next word is? Happy! You could say that. We'll have positive vibrations coming at them. No, it says be persecuted. You know, most of the church in the world, outside of the American church, knows that to be true, but there is a necessity to keep telling the American church, no, this is true for us as well. We don't get a pass on this, guys. However, I would add this, in the life to come, huh? in the life to come, it will be us. It will be the children of God if you are one and you only become one through faith in Jesus Christ. You are not born into the family of God by natural birth, but by spiritual birth. For us who are the children of God in the life to come, we will never again know any mourning or crying or pain. Never again. Our sufferings will one day be no more. Huh? Yeah. For us, for those who are outside of the family of God, for those who have rejected Jesus Christ, this suffering is nothing compared to the suffering that is to come. And friends, that should move you to tell the people around you about Christ. And then in verses 18 through 25 of chapter 8, Paul goes on to further, listen, he goes on to further address the matter of suffering and the certain expectation of glory for the Christian. And he starts out by saying this. This is all review now, but it's the context. He says this, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's the Christian. What a great and important statement for us to know and to continually be thinking about. As Christians, we always need to be considering that, that the sufferings, or we need to be considering the sufferings of this present time in light of our future glory. 
We need to be doing that. Why? Because when we fail to focus and meditate on the glory that awaits us as children of God, then the temporary, did you hear what I said? Temporary. The temporary difficulties and pains. I didn't say it wasn't painful. It is painful to suffer, but it is temporary. Those temporary difficulties and pains and sorrows of life, if we are not considering them in light of our future glory, they can begin to overtake us. Do you know what I'm talking about? You ever had that happen? I have. More than once. They can begin to drive us to despair. If we are not careful, they can rob us of the peace and joy that we can and should have in Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on to explain in chapter 8 that the creation, the earth, man's environment, the world that we live in, That suffers as well. The creation itself suffers. Animals suffer. Plant life suffers. The whole thing suffers. And we know from Genesis, the first book of the Bible, that the earth that God gave to Adam, the first man, and his future descendants to rule over, that's why he gave it to him, to rule over it, to have dominion over it, That earth was cursed by God because of Adam's sin against God in the garden. That's the story. That's what we hear in Genesis. That's what we're told. So even the man was cursed and man's environment was cursed. There's nowhere man could run to get relief. That's how serious sin is to God. He cursed the whole thing. But the creation does not suffer without hope, my friends. No, for it continues with anticipation to eagerly look forward to the coming glory of the children of God. Because it knows that at that time, at that time, it will finally and fully be restored. Only then will its suffering finally cease. Only then will the curse be reversed. Only then. And I might say something here. I was reading this article on millennial. It's the generational thing. You know, there's boomers and Xers and Yers and Zers. And I don't, I get confused. But there's millennials. And these are people that are born around the beginning of, you know, 85. Everyone changes the day. 85, year 2000. They're stepping into the new age, the new millennium. And and it says of millennials. So if you're born somewhere in that range, I guess you're a millennial. Uh, He was just kind of pointing out that. The old generation, the, the, the boomers, when they came, to the, they came into Christianity, they wanted to know what was true. They wanted to know what was true. So the churches spent time explaining that the Bible was true and that these doctrines were true and Jesus Christ was true. And then supposedly the next generation came along, the Xers, and they wanted to know what was real. They wanted to know what was authentic. So it's fine that it's true, but they want to see it. Is it real? Is it genuine? So they want to see that. And then he says millennials, they want to, they want to know what's good. So they don't care so much if it's true. Again, these are generalities. They don't care so much if it's true or even authentic. Yeah, that's fine. But they want to know, is it actually doing something? Is this Christianity actually doing something? And by that, the guy said that that means that uh, they want to see it change the world. They want to see Christianity change the world. So his suggestion was, if we don't help them see how Christianity changes the world, if we don't give them... uh, uh, opportunities to do that in the church will lose the millennials, will lose that generation. 
Can I just, let me just say something to you. Uh, what ends up happening is something called the social gospel. It's the social gospel. It's the idea that uh, what we need to focus on as a church is the social issues of our day. So, for instance, human trafficking. Human trafficking. Is human trafficking by this modern-day slavery? So people are trafficked. It goes on, guys. All over our world, people are stolen, kidnapped, and then used in horrific ways against their will. Human trafficking. Business is built around this. It goes on in the United States, too. It's disgusting, it's vile, it's wicked, it should be abolished, okay? Yes, we should speak out against it when it comes up. Yes, it's wrong. Yes, we call it what it is. It's evil. But do we, are we going to give ourselves fully and completely, do we think the cure to, the, to the, the ills of our society is to somehow spend all of our time trying to fix human trafficking? Can I just tell you something? That's not the answer. The answer is and always has been Jesus Christ. I can make every law possible. I can bring all the enforcement I want against human trafficking. And I might be able to put a dent in it. But the sin in man will just work it out some other way. He'll get around it. He'll get under it. If it's not human trafficking, it'll be rape. It'll be something else that I've got to deal with. And so what we end up doing is spending all of our time trying to do with, deal with the social ills. Listen. We're not going to fix the world. Uh, this might be a shocker to you. That is not the Christian mission. It is not to fix the world. It is to lead people to Jesus Christ so that they're ready for the world to come. Now, as each individual in a society, in a city, comes to Christ, you know what happens to them? They become a new creation. The Spirit enters in. They have a new heart. All of a sudden, things begin to change in their life. And they have an impact on their home in a positive way, on their workplace, on their community, on their city, on their state, as they move into positions of power and things such as this, they have a positive effect on the world. Huh? That's the answer. But if we spend all of our time trying to change the world, we won't change the world. You know who's going to change the world? Christ. When he comes back, that's what the scriptures say. The world is messed up. It's not going to get any better, my friends. Please. The world is messed up. The Lord will come back and he will set it right. What we want to do, listen, the flood is a coming. The worldwide flood is a coming. It's called the judgment of God. And we got an ark. He's Christ. And so what we want to do is see as many people as possible get on the ark. And when the flood comes and it's, all the unrighteousness is washed away, then, then rivers of righteousness will flow through the land. But only then. You hear me? So listen, I'm all against stopping all. I, I, I hate all that stuff too. But the purpose of the church is to lead people to Christ and then teach them how to lead others to Christ. That's the main purpose, guys. Make disciples who make disciples. Hello? Woo. Man, all right. So for now, back to our context, the creation goes on groaning. It goes on groaning in the pains of childbirth. 
And as I said in a previous sermon, right? So we're, again, we're in this context of suffering. Uh, creation itself is groaning. And it, he says specifically, he uses that phrase, in the pains of childbirth. But it's not a pointless pain, right? Childbirth is not a pointless pain. It's a pain that is not pointless. And guess what? It's not forever. It certainly might feel like it is forever for the woman going through it, but it's not. But rather, it's a pain. It's a pain that anticipates and gives way to great joy. Huh? Yeah. So for the creation, the difficulties and trials of this age are accompanied with the knowledge that they will ultimately issue forth in victory and joy. Victory and joy. And beloved, that needs to be our mindset as well. That needs to be our mindset as well. We, we need to learn from creation. Our pains and sufferings will ultimately issue forth in victory and joy. And then in verses 26 through 27... Listen, still in the context of suffering. We're still in it. We are told that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness. When we don't know what to pray for as we ought, He intercedes for us with petitions that perfectly match the will of God. He prays on our behalf. In the midst of the difficulties of this life, in the midst of our sufferings, the Spirit of God who indwells us comes to our aid. When we don't know what to ask for, or even when we ask for things that we shouldn't, that are not best for us, He, the Holy Spirit, helps us by asking our Heavenly Father for exactly what we need, for those things that are truly best for us. That might include suffering. Things that are entirely in accordance with God's will. And now having said all that, see, that's why it's a two-parter. Context, we had to deal with that first. Now having said all that, let's read verse 28 again. You understand the context? We've gone through it, we've reviewed. And then Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So before we look at anything else concerning this verse, here is the main thing I want you to walk out of here today with on your mind. And it is this. When Paul puts forth this promise that all things work together for good, the all things based on the context, and while it certainly can't be limited to one particular thing, right? The word says all, it's all things, it's not limited to one thing, but based on the context, it most certainly includes the sufferings of this present time. And I am convinced that that is what Paul primarily has in mind here. That's what he primarily has in mind here when he, when he made that statement. So the basic idea is this then. The impre- incredible promise is that all things, all things, not just the good things, not just the good things, beloved, but the bad things, the bad things that we experience in life, like huh, being persecuted, because of our faith in Christ. Or even things such as financial challenges. 
Hello. Any financial challenge? You're all doing well? Give more to the church then. That was a little self-serving, you think? No, it's not. It's for the glory of God, guys. Or how about problems with your health? How about problems with your health? Anybody have problems with their health? Anybody have recurring problems with their health? Uh, If you don't now, amen. If you don't now, you will. You probably will. I don't know of any. It's very rare you ever find anybody go through life without any problems concerning their health. How about the deep pain that comes? Talking about suffering now, the suffering of these present times. How about the, the deep pain that comes from the loss of a loved one? How about being treated unjustly? Any of you been treated unjustly? If not, just get out a little more, man. It'll happen. Just drive on the freeways. Just go into the shopping mall. I mean, it's... How about unfairly? You ever been treated unfairly? That's suffering, my friends. That's the suffering. That won't happen in the world to come. How about difficult or broken relationships? Any of you have any any challenges considering your relationships with your family or members of your family or maybe your immediate family? Huh? Huh? No one? Am I talking? You guys are all good. No, you guys have. That's right. Okay. You're okay. You're amening or what are you? You're all good? Okay. You guys saw you got suffering. Good. I'm speaking just to you, my friend. Justin, I'm speaking just to you. So, uh, we could go on and on, but that's included in all things. Let me put it this way to you. It is our perfectly wise and sovereign God, our loving, good, gracious Heavenly Father, that causes all things, even suffering. Even things that are not, hear me, that are not good in and of themselves to work together for good. That's the promise. Now that, we're going we're gonna to look at that more, but that should go under, what does the promise mean? If, if you, you, could, you could just jot that down or make a note, we kind of jumped ahead but you picked up something there right now. What does the promise mean? That all things certainly includes, and I think is predominantly about, in Paul's mind when he's writing in that context, about the sufferings of this present time. One writer says this, God, God directs the affairs of life in such a way that for those who love him, the outcome is beneficial. Another writer says this, No circumstance fails to contribute to our good. Huh? No circumstance. No circumstance. By the way, the promise found in verse 28 is what is reflected on the back of your bulletins. I don't know if you know this, but on the back of your bulletins, maybe grab those and pull those out real quick. We have this little thing here about preaching the gospel to yourself. It communicates the good news of Jesus Christ and 
And we say to preach it to yourself because it's not just for the unbeliever, it's for the believer too. They need to rehearse these things. They need to remind themselves of the truths of the gospel. It's, it's encouraging, it's comforting, it's motivating. It's all of those things. And under the sixth bullet under preach the gospel to yourself, it says this, his love for you did not end with your salvation. It didn't end there. No, but it extends to every circumstance and difficulty of life whereby he, God, forces them to do us good. Now, there is certainly more that we need to look at concerning this promise, okay? And we'll continue this study next week. But for now, I just want to begin. I have a few minutes left. I have enough time. It's just really quick. We're just going to start to look at the first point because it would be really weird if we came in here and we didn't even look at one of the points. So who is the promise for? Who is the promise for? I've already given you a little bit about what the promise means, but we're not done. We still have to answer some questions. But who is the promise for? Because if it's not for you, then who cares, really? But, uh, so I want you to notice that according to the text, I want you to notice this, according, and by the text I mean the scripture that's there, it is not, it is not a universal promise. Or a promise that every human, or a promise for every human being that all things will somehow work out for good in the end. It is not that. Instead, it is a promise that is specifically, specifically for the believer, for the Christian. Paul uses two parallel descriptions of those for whom all things work together for good. Both references are clearly speaking about the child of God, those who have been saved through Christ. Look at the text again. Look at it again. Paul says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. You could say, for those who are called according to His purpose, all things work together for good, for those who who love God. Now, what we're going to do is simply look at the first description quickly today, those who love God, those who love God. And next week, we're going to pick up right where we're leaving off, and we're going to dive into the meaning of called according to His purpose. Incredible stuff. Incredible stuff. Don't miss it. So both descriptions are those of the Christian. All right. Now, concerning the phrase, those who love God, I want to point this out before you leave. So you know a little bit about the promise, right? Those all things, think suffering, suffering of this present time. They work together for my good. So that's, you got to hold on to that. God doesn't waste anything in your life, my friends. Nothing, not even the bad stuff. He doesn't waste any of it. He uses it all for good. This is amazing. Only he could pull this off. But it's for the Christian, those who love God. And so Paul is saying here, or not saying, let me say, Paul is not saying by saying that phrase, those who love God, or suggesting that it is for those who, uh, who perfectly love God, and that all things work together for good. That's not what he's saying. It, it's a description, it's simply a description of the true child of God. Or, or let me say it another way. It is not a condition here, loving God, a condition for a person to try to fulfill Rather, it is the condition or state or description of the person for whom all things work together for good. 
Listen, if we were being honest, let's do that, okay? I always like when someone starts a phrase like that. If I was being honest, oh, I'm glad you're going to be honest now. That's fantastic. If we're being honest, I mean honest with ourselves because we do. We deceive ourselves. We deceive others. We do that. Does not our love for God throughout this life, does not, I'm talking to you Christians now, does not our love for God in this life ebb and flow? Meaning that at times we can find that our love for God has decreased and then we find at other times that it has increased. Anybody? Hello? You think, you think, don't think you're weird if that happens to you because it happens to all of us. Don't think pastor's always like on some high with the love of God. He's not. He goes through this just like you. He's, he's still being sanctified and changed. And there's nobody I know if they're being honest. I know some people pretend like they're always just way up here on the chain of love for God. Wow. I'm sorry. That is not reality. The reality is our love for God can grow cold at times. Huh? I mean, when you first get saved, woo! There's a fire, man. You are on fire. And nobody, if anybody told you that your love for God would ever grow cold, you'd be like, you don't know what you're talking about. This will never grow cold. And then just, all right, come back a year, two or three or four. Hey, how you doing? Uh... And this is the importance of being connected to the church, my friends. You know the church is God's idea? He knows us. He wired us. He knows, he knows what we're going to go through, our struggles. Right? He knows. He's intimately involved and knows these things, right? He's aware. So he gave us the church. It's a gift that so many Christians, unfortunately, never open. I don't get that. They don't take advantage of this gift. You know, it's like embers in a fire. You've heard the illustration, right? You ever, you know, made coals for a barbecue? And when all the coals are together and they're burning, they finally get to that point of orange, hot orange, right? Well, one ember is kind of stoking or encouraging the other ember. That heat altogether encourages them to be all hot. They work in synergy to keep that fire going. What happens when one of the embers just rolls off to the side? What happens? How long does it take for the ember to lose its glow? Not very long. And so, sadly, I've seen this occur over and over again, where Christians step out of the church. And it's for all kinds of reasons, my friends, but they step out of the church, and they're not going to go back, and you watch that glow die out. So our love can grow cold. Even in the church, our love can grow cold, and that's why we need each other. We need the Word of God. We need to come here on Sunday and sing great praises to God. We need to hear the Scripture read. We need to hug each other. We need to love each other, encourage one another, rebuke each other, because sin can cause our love to grow cold. So in love, we rebuke. We exhort. Turn, repent, that your love may not grow cold, right? So we may need reviving from time to time, but that being true, what still can be said of every genuine believer is that they indeed love God. Every genuine believer indeed loves God. Sometimes more, sometimes less, but they love God. Why? Because God has given them a new heart. He's given them a new heart. He has made them a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, they have new affections. And as a result, they do love God and continue by God's grace and His indwelling Holy Spirit 
to grow in their love for and devotion to God. Isn't that awesome? One person says it this way, loving God is a qualification for the enjoyment of the promise of this verse, but it is a qualification met by all who belong to Christ. In other words, Paul does not intend to suggest that the promise, all things work together for good, ceases to have validity for a Christian who is not loving God enough. See, that's what I do. I want you to just be clear about that. Think about this. Uh, sorry, but since your love ran a little cold this month, all things are not going to work together for good. <laughs> Man, what? that'd be a terrible promise then. But that's not the promise. So he goes on to say, loving God sums up the basic inner direction of all Christians, but only of Christians. I could spend, you know, I'm out of time already, but I could, we could go on about that. Let me just say, it is Christians, those who have been born again, those who are a new creation, those who have been given a new, new heart, that truly love God. And I mean the God of the Bible. The God who has revealed himself to mankind through the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The one who loves God loves his son. The one who loves God loves his church, loves the people of God. Perfectly? No. Sometimes they hurt each other bad. (laughs) That's why we have to forgive and go through all of those things and repent. But they love, my friends. They love. See, because, you know, there's people that, oh, yeah, no, 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 I don't do your Jesus thing, and I certainly don't come to church and do all that nonsense, but uh, I love God. No, you don't. You don't. You don't love God, not really. You love an idol. You love the God that you have imagined in your own mind, the one that allows you to do what you want and still claim to love God. That's the God you love. If you love God, you'd submit your life to Jesus Christ, His Son. You'd be my brother or sister. You'd be going to church with me. Anyway, so this promise is uh, for for the Christian because that's the one who truly loves God, the God of the Bible, the God who has revealed himself most fully, most gloriously in the person of Jesus Christ. So it's only the genuine child of God, the one who, listen, by God's saving and sovereign grace is now no longer a hater of God. No longer. See, no no non-Christian wants to hear that they hate God, but they do. In their heart of hearts, they hate God. And they have expressed that hate by simply recreating God in their own image, one they're comfortable with. But you no longer hate God, my friends, if you're a believer of Jesus Christ. Instead, you're a lover of God. And that is the person who can truly rely upon the promise of verse 28 that all things work together for good. Now, if you're wondering what the good might be, what is the good? Is it just some kind of general statement? Hey, man, all things work together for good. What is it? See, God doesn't leave us like that. I'm going to tell you. I'm, going to, I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm just going to say, here's a hint. You can look at this later. The answer is in verse 29. That's all I'm going to say. We're going to come back next week because it's all about context, but the answer is in verse 29. Oh, my. I can't even wait. I am so excited to share. I am. I wanted to. Look, it's already uh, 11.50 or something like that. I wanted to do it. I wanted to, but it's going to be a cliffhanger. You've got to come back next week. We know God uses all things, including our suffering. We're going to talk more about that, 
for our good, for good. What is that good? Wait till you see. Uh, it's going to be awesome. And, and, and also, how exactly do things like suffering work for our good, all right? So, I, so now you understand it can, God does work it for good, but how does that work itself out? We're going to talk about that next week. I'll close with this. Listen, one writer says this, on it, on it, this promise, believers of every age, every age, going all the way back to the beginning and place have stayed their minds. As soon as this scripture came through and they received it, believers of every age and place have stayed their minds. They've kept their minds right here. It has been likened to a pillow on which to rest our weary heads. And it is, my friends, and you come back next week and you'll get the full story and it will be your pillow to rest your weary head, I promise. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is, wow, glorious. What a gift. What a treasure. Thank you for the many promises that are found in it that do specifically speak to us as children of God. And this is a doozy. This is a big one. Father, may your spirit work in our hearts and minds as we begin to look at this that we might understand it and, and get the full weight and glory and wonder of all that is said in just this one verse. It is amazing. It is amazing. But Father, as always, I pray this verse is for the child of God. This, is, this verse is for those who have put their faith in, in the, Lord, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who who have recognized his saving work on the cross on their behalf, who have recognized that they need to be saved. They cannot save themselves. No one can. God, you alone save, and you save through Jesus. Father, they can't claim this promise. All things do not work together for good for them, not in, certainly not in the end, Lord, in any way. Their destiny is judgment and wrath. But Father, they can't escape that. And we know that. And I ask that you work mightily in their hearts and minds even now through your spirit. That they might come to their senses, that their eyes might be opened and their ears unplugged. They might even now, Lord, cry out to you. Recognize their helpless condition. Admit that they are deserving of your wrath. They've earned it. They are sinners like the rest. And see Jesus for the first time, not just as a guy who lived a long time ago, not just someone we celebrate at Christmas, but as Lord and Savior, the Son of God, Redeemer. May they cry out to you and trust you in that salvation, even now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.